You are listening to the Hostage to the Devil podcast. Some listeners may find this content disturbing. The nation state as such is coming to its end. And doubtless the young people, I'm 75, so I don't reckon myself there, but the younger people, the 20-somethings, the 30-somethings, perhaps the 40-somethings, will live the day when major decisions about our money and about our education and about our religion are not made uh, by the Senate or the Congress or the Presidency. They're made outside by other agents. This is uh, the New World Order. The New World Order. Already big decisions are being made that we have nothing to do with. We just obey. Episode 3, Death and Conspiracy. In this episode, I'll be looking at Maliki Martin's death and funeral in a little bit more detail, as well as addressing several of the conspiracy theories surrounding the man with the help of some familiar voices. As mentioned in episode one, I went down a lot of rabbit holes during the research phase of the film, and here are a few standout theories that I came across. Maliki Martin was a descendant of Judaic bankers who somehow ended up in Ireland. He was a betrayer of God who advanced his rabbinic agenda. He was actually never ordained a Jesuit. He was a working insider in Vatican politics during his time in Rome. He carried out sensitive missions for renowned Jesuit Cardinal Bayer, Pope John XXIII and Pope Paul VI. He worked for the CIA, he was an Israeli spy, a triple agent, an enemy of the Catholic Church. He was summoned to the prison cell of murderer David Berkowitz, son of Sam Killer. He wrote over 60 books, including Jewish literature under the pseudonyms Michael Serafian and F.E. Carters. He worked for the American Jewish Committee with a Swiss bank account linking the collaboration. He was not an exorcist. Maliki was co-founder of the organization Veterans Today, which looked into revelations of Satan-worshipping Jesuits with connections to CIA and their plan to destroy religion. He was a secret bishop. He was created a cardinal by Pope Pius XII, in secret of course. He was writing a book before he died called Primacy, How the Institutional Roman Catholic Church Became a Creature of the New World Order. It was never finished and the manuscript disappeared. Maliki apparently called this his most controversial and important book. It is burning inside me, he quotes. He was murdered for revealing Vatican secrets. As you can imagine, I was quite overwhelmed with the number of stories surrounding the man. And to quote Bob Kaiser, his life would make a good movie someday. So, let's get back to Maliki's final moments. I dug out some archived interviews and phone calls with his close friends Robert Marrow, Suzanne Pearson and Kathy Mylott. This is what they had to say about Maliki's death. My birthday is July 25th. His birthday was July 27th. And as close friends, we'd gotten to the point where you don't need to exchange gifts. But what we would do is on the day in the middle, the 26th, we would always meet for a meal and just toast each other, happy birthday. And we were supposed to meet at the Isle of Capri on the Upper East Side for dinner. And I get a phone call from him at about 10 o'clock in the morning and he sounded very groggy and he said, at the time he called me Bob, I go by Robert Rob. But he said, Bob, I've taken a bit of a tumble It seems when we went to Connecticut, I angered the adversary and Old Scratch wanted to get back at me. I said, are you all right? He says, I'm pretty sure I'll be fine, but I've got to go to the hospital to be checked out. He says, I'll give you a call and we'll reschedule. He goes, there's no way I'm going to make dinner tomorrow night. I'll give you a call and reschedule. And that was the last I ever spoke to him because when he went to the hospital, he lapsed into a coma and they were restricting the access of people into his room. It was a semi-private room at Lenox Hill Hospital. They said at first in the hospital he was very conscious and he was talking to people and so forth, 
But by the time I got there, he was totally unconscious. I had a tremendous sense in that room that a struggle was continuing, even though he was comatose. And that's why the prayers that we made and we sent to protect him were so important. I did manage to get in by going very, very early on a Sunday morning. And he was hooked up to basically every machine you could think of under the sun. He was in a coma, and I recited the rosary, and I basically said my goodbyes to him. I said my goodbyes, and I said, we both know where you're going, Mal, and I know you can hear me. And I'd hate to make it sound like a joke, but you can run, but you can't hide. Just because you're making the great transition doesn't mean I'm going to stop pestering you. And I'm not ashamed to say I was bawling like a little child because he was my best friend in a coma. And I knew he wasn't hearing me with his, with his ears. Hopefully he was hearing me with his soul. And two days later, he passed away. Now, there's a certain suspicion on my part that there was something suspicious about his stay there. I mean, you know, in these days, with the technology developed the way it is, there are lots of ways that enemies can end a person's life. And I've known of other cases where people went to the hospital for something that didn't seem fatal at all and then suddenly died. Malachi Brendan Martin died on 27th of July 1999 at Lenox Hill Hospital, New York City, caused by an intercerebral hemorrhage. I asked Robert recently about his good friend's funeral and subsequent burial. The church up in South Orange, New Jersey, was absolutely packed to overflowing. And he received a full pre-Vatican II requiem funeral mass, the old-fashioned funeral mass where the priest who is saying the mass and the uh, the deacon are in their garments are trimmed in black and you know the, the traditional old latin funeral hymns were sung and he didn't have a formal wake but instead his casket was uh, halfway open for maybe an hour before the funeral and people who wanted to pay their respects went up and paid their respects to him and then moved on. It was a line, it was a line of people that took about 20 minutes to go by. It was quite a number of people in the church. It was standing room only. And when I got to him, I looked down and I'm thinking to myself, this is the last time I'm ever gonna see him this side of paradise. So I kind of very sneakily put a photo of myself and Father Morton. I believe it's one of the photos that was in the movie Hostage actually. I slipped it down into the casket between the casket wall and his left hand, out of sight. And I said, here's a little token from your buddy Rob. Remember me. And then I just remember that I, I, I kissed him on the forehead. And I said, rest in peace, my friend. And then before the actual mass began, the funeral director closed the casket. And, you know, they, they put the pall over the casket and... The funeral mass was said, and the internment, I believe it was Gates of Heaven Cemetery up in uh, New York above Manhattan, the internment was uh, specifically at Mrs. Lovanos's uh, request to be a private internment. It was a very intense day, very intense experience. It really was. Marty, you know how much I miss him. Yeah. You know how much I miss him. For those of you who don't know who Kakia Livanos was, she was a wealthy Greek widow of a shipping tycoon in Manhattan. 
When Malachi Martin first arrived in New York City, it was arranged for him to stay with Kaki and her children. This living arrangement caused a lot of controversy with Malachi's family back in Ireland, as well as Mrs. Livanos' own children. When Kaki had died and was buried on the same plot of land, sharing the same burial plaque as Malachi, this only amplified matters and gossip further. I don't believe that Malachi knew he was going to be buried in the same exact plot of land, right? but he knew that the Lovanos family had made arrangements for him to be buried in consecrated ground at Gates of Heaven Cemetery. And there's a very, very simple reason why Malachi was buried in the same plot, because Mrs. Lovanos wanted it that way. She obviously cared for him very deeply, whether or not they were having a romantic relationship, certainly not at the time that I, I knew him, but she was very possessive of him and very, she was very controlling of him. She was extremely wealthy. She was the executrix of his estate. His family in Ireland wanted to keep a good relationship with him, so they didn't want to rock the boat and break any relationship with Katya, but they did not like that relationship at all, at all. They thought it was very wrong. I also heard, even from Malachi, that Cardinal O'Connor had taken issue with it and had tried to tell him to stop that living arrangement. And he immediately went to his attorney. They had a letter sent to Cardinal O'Connor, and Cardinal O'Connor backed off. People like to put all kinds of wink-wink, nudge-nudge, salacious connotations attached to that. And they're very off-base. Had anyone who had ever met Mrs. Lovanos and if you had told them that's what people would be saying, you'd be laughed out of the room. The woman was a very, very stern force of nature. All I can think of would be, the best way to describe her, would be a Brooks No Interference school principal from the early 1900s. The kind of the woman who, when you meet her, if you're a student, she, she automatically assumes you're cheating on something she just hasn't found out yet. There was, she was, she was a very, she, look, it, it took her a while to warm up to me. Uh, we're talking a couple of years to the point where, to the point where she would put me through to Father Malachi when I called the apartment. She was kind of the gatekeeper in that respect to keep the wing nuts away. And she actually gave me a very beautiful piece of her painted artwork that she was fond of producing. She gave that to me one year for a Christmas gift. And I remember Malachi telling me at the time, he says, that's it, you're in. I said, what do you mean I'm in? He says, you have performed the nearly impossible task of winning the trust of Kakia Lovanus. <laughs> she would not give you one of her paintings as a Christmas gift. If that were not, in fact, I'm looking at it right now. And he says, you wouldn't have that painting right now if she didn't trust you. He said that when he first came to New York, the bishop advised him to move in with a family. And he would often say that some members of the family were having great difficulty and it was causing him a lot of distress, having to be around this all the time. Nowhere did anybody get the impression that something was going on between them. The first time that that seemed public is after he died, a newspaper article said that Katia was his companion, which in this country means, you know what, a lot of us who knew him were furious at that because there really was no basis for thinking that. 
Obviously, we saw what happened after he died. Nikakia did a plot in Gate of Heaven Cemetery. She was not even Roman Catholic. I don't know how that happened. She's Greek Orthodox. She was buried out of the Greek Orthodox Cathedral, uh, Holy Trinity. And I was asked to go by Malachi's family, who was deceased then. His sister, Neda, asked me to go and represent the Martin family and get flowers on behalf of the Martin family, which I did to her um, funeral. But she was, you know, buried out of the Greek Orthodox Church, so she had not converted. And she was buried on Roman Catholic soil in a common plot with him. And I guess even when he died, she did the obituary that, you know, she was his companion for many years. And, you know, people took issue with that. I don't know. You know, I mean, I think that was a relationship that sustained him. I know he had been thinking about retiring up to a community, a traditionalist community in Richmond, New Hampshire, uh, he had been thinking of moving there because maybe on some level he realized it was not a good situation. There was absolutely nothing romantic between the two of them. His apartment was actually a very small efficiency room apartment within a much larger apartment on East 63rd Street in a, in a uh, dormant building. I mean, he was free to use the living room things like that, but he had his own tiny little warren inside their apartment that was his province only. Not even Mrs. Lovanos went in there. I was told the only time she went in there was after he died to clean it out. And apparently she went in and cleaned it out like a white tornado. He's been accused of a lot of bad things. I mean, I know somebody who's really quite holy, who truly believes that he was trying to destroy the church in spite of all that that he did, that he was trying to destroy the church. He was working with enemies of the church, etc. And then, then we hear about this affair that he supposedly had with somebody. But everybody that knew him uh, is, is assures that that never took place. He did some undercover assignments for the Vatican, and he knew a lot of intelligence in that way and they have taught him all sorts of skills of being an undercover agent like how to be invisible he talked about that and he also had a great awareness at all times with the spirit world and that is not only uh, when you dwell on exorcisms there's a lot more to it than exorcisms and a lot more to it than the evil angels because he was really in contact, and I don't mean as a psychic, more through a deep prayer. He was in contact with his guardian angel, and he said every city has an angel, every government has an angel, countries have angels. He was in contact with this whole network, just as aware of the good side as he was of the evil side. For instance, one time we walked down a street in Manhattan, my sister and I and, and Father Malachi, and he said that man there has killed three people. He also was called to talk to this very, very infamous criminal that we had in New York back in the 80s called Son of Sam, who used to shoot young couples. And the police called Father Malachi to consult with him because they thought it was a spiritual problem, and apparently it was. He named to me the state of my soul. That That's amazing. I mean, it's just truly amazing. He knew things that I wouldn't expect him 
to know. He did that apparently a lot because when he appeared on the Art Bell show and people would call in and many people over the years say their lives were completely changed. Actually, by the way, we have two angels, but let me not complicate it now. We have one angel called the guardian angel. And in a normal way, if, if I am observing the law, if I'm uh, uh, keeping myself relatively clean of sin and trying to serve God in my own way, my angel communicates with me. Okay. And he does it in the accepted mode. And the accepted mode is by inspirations, by instincts, by tin twinges of conscience, by memories. Now, if that angel is not there, he has been renounced, and Lucifer is in his place. He does the very same, he uses the very same mode. That's called possession. Mm-hmm. So that's the dynamic of all of this. That's right. And the, the remember that angelic possession is just as powerful as demonic possession. Mm-hmm. But uh, many people do not attain to angelic possession because it takes a great amount of fidelity to your angel and to your instincts and to your life. Uh, but it is the source of great purity and great energy and great joy and great confidence in yeah. life. There are current Catholic commentators who have absolutely ripped Malachi Martin to shreds uh, in one case, in one show, having a back-and-forth conversation about how he was an absolute screwball and wingnut. And I'm thinking to myself, well, first off, this is not a show I can call in and counter your slander with, number one. But number two, if someone was a wingnut or a screwball, would he be able to pick up a phone and obtain for me a one-on-one meeting with Pope John Paul II in the Vatican two and a half weeks later? That's a rhetorical question, but you know the answer. And I did have the honor of meeting Pope John Paul II. And Maliki arranged the whole thing. I remember Robert talking about this encounter with the Pope during our development interview back in 2013. And it was early in the morning, it was about 7.30, and I was walking from one direction and a cleric came walking from the other direction. And it was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who would one day be Pope. And I reverenced his ring when I greeted him and I said, uh, hello, I'm here from the United States. Um, I said, I have gotten an, a personal audience, a short one, with His Holiness tomorrow, arranged through Malachi Martin, the author in Rome. And Cardinal Ratzinger's face lit up in recognition. He says, and how is our father Malachi doing? And I said, he's doing quite fine. But, you know, Malachi obviously had very high-level connections because I did get to meet the Pope. I've got a photograph of me taken by the Vatican photographer who trails the Pope everywhere he goes, presenting this beautiful pen and ink study of the Virgin to His Holiness, and I received in return papal rosary beads. They're probably given out by the thousands, but it's obviously going to be very special to me. Whilst we were making the film in New York City, we were summoned to the location of a father, Pat Maloney, who had met Maliki Martin on several occasions. I'll let Paddy, the producer, tell the story, and I apologise for the low-quality recording of Father Pat. It was a secret recording, after all. You and I went around the corner to <laughs> a very typical East Village house, and in the basement of this house, we met this very, very strange man, um, Father Pat Maloney. And he introduced himself to us as the, the IRA priests of New York. And for anybody who's interested, if you look him up, he's 
he spent quite a bit of his life in prison in different jurisdictions, but his, mo- his most recent stint in prison was to do with an early 90s Brinks robbery in upstate New York somewhere. And he was, he wasn't involved in the robbery, but he was, there was suspicions that he was involved in the laundering of the money. And I think he'd served about five years. We were sitting in his basement <laughs> with some very strange characters. And I recall you felt a bit intimidated, Marky. Yeah, the, Brit- the, Brit- <laughs> the British man on Oysters, yeah. The, 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 on, the only British ex-military <laughs> man in the room. And it was a little bit tense, but we spent, I don't know, we were there a couple of hours, were we? Very surreal circumstances with a very, very surreal man. And he told us sort of, I don't know if he told us anything specific, but he sort of hinted at loads of things about himself and Malachi would be given jobs by the church that the church wouldn't touch. They were like the off the book gun for hire for (laughs) jobs the church required looking after, but they couldn't record it anywhere. Fascinating man shared his house with some interesting characters he's he's passed away since all right um but his connection to nefarious american characters sort of crops up every now and again like he officiated at whitey bulger's funeral okay and i'm always rem- visions of his funny black square hat <laughs> the, you know, i don't know what it is one of those bishopy hats um, I was just thinking Father Ted all the way through it, mate. Yeah, it was it was like uh, I mean, if you weren't there, you couldn't make it up. The best memory that I have, people, is personable, nice guy, liked by people. I don't, I, I didn't know that he had any enemies except maybe with with those who didn't like criticism. Mm. I believe that Malachi, Beckhamart, and others wanted to in the in the in the same time and line of shame wanted to bring out the fact yes there is evil in the world there is good there is the demonic and it has to be addressed and i believe that in a clandestine way they used him in many many ways mm-hmm. but wouldn't officially admit it now i'm a kind of a maverick mm-hmm. and some you don't say <laughs> they run, run away a mile in certain ways yeah but you'd be surprised there are fairies like here, all the way from the top, yeah. from an archbishop to a bishop and in between, mm-hmm. which is like, like one particular situation. Well, if this goes wrong, what could happen? Mm, somebody might get arrested, but that might could happen. Oh, well, 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 I'll tell you what. Better you handle the case than I get involved. God bless you, my son. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I felt leaving that there was no set of circumstances we weren't going to be watched as we left. And I don't know if you recall, but subsequent to our visit there, it really looked like the bins outside our Airbnb in Brooklyn had been searched. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, definitely wasn't animals or, you know. No. It was definitely... uh... If you recall, the, the year we were in New York filming this, we went, we traveled about 15 minutes after the really bad winter stopped. Yeah, yeah. As soon as the snow broke, we were on the road. Yeah. And 
all in New York was in the process of cleaning up this sort of snow dump. <laughs> so it was quite obvious that somebody had been searching in Arbin, yeah, in Brooklyn, and po- post his demise, the FBI were quoted because you know they're still looking for them. There's seven and a half million dollars in the wind somewhere that he was tagged with. It might, might be um, his, might be in his hat. Might have been in his hat. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody searches the hat, mate. No, no. <laughs> uh, remember, remember, straight after that encounter, we went back into, we were going to my mate's bar in West Village or whatever it was, and yeah, remember you just stood there and looking, looking in the window. And I was asking you, what, what the hell are you looking in the window for, Paddy? You actually looking to see if we were being followed or not? <laughs> it was like <laughs> cloak and dagger stuff, but it was yeah, like, like true French connection, man. It was crazy. Yeah. Robert and Maliki would talk a lot during their car rides together. Here is one story talking about Maliki Martin's time in Czechoslovakia. He asked me to take black and white photographs of him because he said they were necessary for a file that was held in the Vatican. And every year or so, he had to send a picture of himself in his clerical garb, black and white, to the Vatican to keep his file updated. And when I asked him, why black and white? He said, because the treatments on the edge of a cleric's cassock denote his rank as an ecclesial cleric, be it priest, monsignor, bishop, etc., He said, so I don't want to give my enemies any further ammunition, so all photographs go in black and white. And it goes back to the 1950s, when the church was being very actively persecuted behind the Iron Curtain. So the church was actually running networks of secret priests and bishops in East Germany, in Poland very vigorously, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania, etc. And they received, the Vatican Secretary of State received word that a priest in Czechoslovakia, in Prague, I believe, had kind of gone off the rails. He was an underground priest and he had gotten married and he was carrying on in such a way that it was causing very great scandal to the faithful and the underground church. And when the underground bishop there tried to remonstrate with him to see the error of his ways, he threatened to blow the whistle on the underground church's organization to the Czech STB, which was the equivalent of the KGB in Czechoslovakia. Well, they realized they had a problem on their hands because he posed a very great danger to the organization of the church, such as it was. Maliki said that he was called into a room in the apostolic palaces back in the late 1950s. I don't exactly remember the precise date, but At the time, he was a newly ordained priest for about three or four years, and he said he was told by an aide to the Cardinal Secretary of State that we have a problem in Czechoslovakia. A priest has gone off the rails and needs to be laicized, whether he wants to or not, because he's been given many chances, and he's actually turned around and blackmailed us, threatening to reveal the network of priests and bishops. The word has already gone out to the priests and bishops you are to now start following plan B because you are in danger and we don't know if you've already been ratted out. And Maliki said, well, that's all well and good. I'll go and confirm what this priest is doing, but what do you want me to do about it? And they said, if the allegations are true and he admits them, you have to laicize him and remove him from the clerical state. Maliki said, I can't do that. I'm not a bishop. And he said, 
the archbishop and cardinal he was meeting with at the time looked at him, smiled, and said, we can take care of that in five minutes in that chapel over there. And he said, literally, they went through a short ritual, and he was consecrated a bishop. He went to Czechoslovakia, found the situation to be exactly the way it was described. This priest was married, giving scandal, did not care, and he repeated his threat to Malachi that, well, if you do anything to me, the Czech STB will find out what the structure of the local church is. and Do you really want to take that chance? And Malachi basically told him, well, you're now laicized. You're no longer a cleric. And he was turned in to the Czech secret police by this now laicized priest. And he actually spent, I believe it was about a year and a half to two years under very harsh prison circumstances in Czechoslovakia they knew exactly who they had, by the way, okay, because they found out that he was a Jesuit. Rome at the time was penetrated by the KGB. The KGB and the Czech STB were very close, so they knew what they had. He was ultimately released through the direct intercession of either His Holiness Pope Pius XII or Pius XII Secretary of State. So, you know, he had literally been through the ringer. At the very end of his life, he was writing a new book, and he told me that it was a sequel to his last book, Windswept House, and it was a guide to how people can take care of themselves, survive in the years that are ahead. It was well along, and yet, at his death, the whole thing disappeared. Now, that tells me that enemies did that. It does. And my own personal experience with this is that I had given him uh, to look at a copy of a book that I and another person were writing together. It was the manuscript of an unpublished work, and he was reading it over because he was interested. And when he died, I contacted the family he lived with and said I would like to have that book back. And I was told I'd have to wait a few weeks until they get through all this stuff. At the end of that six-week period or whatever, nothing of his was anywhere, and it never was found. And that is highly, highly suspicious. I don't think it's fair to say he was writing a survival guide, because he had told me he had already tentatively given the manuscript a working title of uh, how the Roman Catholic Church became a subordinate creature of the New World Order in the late 20th century. It was not a survival guide. I think he was taking what he had hinted at in broad brush strokes in Windswept House, and I think he was filling in the nitty-gritty detail, as well as, and if this happened, then here is the implication, and here as a Roman Catholic, here is what you should do as a Roman Catholic. And then I think he would leave it up to people to do the right thing, so to speak. Because he often told me, he says, this is not like the early centuries of the church with the Arian heresy where, all, where the bishops uh, were all Arian heretics and the church was persecuted and had to meet in the forests. He says, now we're in the, the age, it was the infant internet at the time, he says, but now we're in the age of this thing called the internet where I can get on my computer and I can be in uh, contact with someone in Shanghai, China in a matter of 45 seconds. 
He says, that's unheard of. He says, we know what we need to do as Catholics to save our souls. He says, it's just a matter of making sure when the time comes, you put those plans into action. You already, if, if you are a Roman Catholic, you already need to know. You already know what you need. You'll just need the courage to put it into action. I'm sure that his book would have been immensely helpful. I have, I have no doubt about that. But I know what he meant for uh, the implications of the, the world we find ourselves in 20 years after his passing. And do you know where this manuscript has gone? I don't think it had actually gotten as far as being a formal manuscript in the sense of like a book galley. I do know that he had assembled notes about the book, but he was not anywhere near the phase of being able to hand someone a big tranche of papers and saying, here, get this transcribed and off to the publisher. It was more or less his collection of research notes and observations. That's the point he had gotten to. That was accurate as of about a month before his passing. So you mentioned the New World Order there. Can you talk about what you think is going on right now and what would he be saying to you right now in your study right now? What he would tell me is that what was prophesied by the Virgin of Fatima and her request that the Pope of 1960 reveal the final full text of her message, he would say the Lady of Heaven formulated it as an either-or proposition. Either you do this, or you're going to set in motion a chain of geopolitical and geophysical events that you will not be able to stop. You might perhaps attenuate them, but you won't stop them. And he would look around at the current, for example, the political climate in the United States, where people are willing to embrace and countenance a Marxist socialist president candidate and do it with a straight face. I mean, he would shake his head ruefully, but he would say, I'm not surprised. He said, this is a natural outgrowth of refusing the mandate of heaven. I had a more pithy way of putting it that always made him laugh. I said, I know. In 1960, the Pope flipped the Virgin Mary the finger and said, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And he would always laugh. And he would look at me and say, well, I'll never say it that way, but that's a pretty accurate depiction. And we've been living with the consequences ever since. So he would say, it's gridded to a timeline that at this time cannot be stopped. And that's why it's important for Catholics to look after themselves. Because when things happen, they will happen quickly. And we will not see them coming. Same way no one saw Corona call coming yeah. in the early part of this year. And now it's, you know, it's tanking markets around the world, causing them to lose trillions of dollars in value. You know, it's causing, you know, calls here and there in the United States for the imposition of martial law. I mean, think about the implications of that phrase and how people are willing to go, will I be protected? Okay, I'll surrender all my freedoms. I don't need the U.S. Constitution. It's just mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. And Maliki would say, you ignore God and his messengers at your peril. So he wouldn't be surprised. He would be sadly cognitive of there's no stopping it now, but he wouldn't be surprised. I don't think he would be so in, in your face as to say, I told you so. You know, he, he would definitely have that look on his face where he, he used to give me over his half little half glasses. And that was enough of an I told you so. 
Is it all doom and gloom then? No, it's not doom and gloom. It's not doom and gloom. And the reason why is because it's gridded to the message of the Virgin of Fatima, the Immaculate Heart of the Mother of God, the Mother of Jesus, who said, in the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. Meaning that the same way that her son won the redemption of the human race by his passion, death, and resurrection from crucifixion on Calvary, her son has given her, as the Queen of Heaven, the power to influence events to ensure that the devil does not triumph. So that's a very powerful phrase. In the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. That's not doom and gloom. That's us saying, we know who wins the war. The war was won 2,000 years ago in Calvary. It's just there'll be a lot of battles along the way. I think it's important at this stage to come forward and communicate my own feelings of Maliki Martin, who's been present in my life for the past 10 years. Within that time, I've read books, articles, listened to podcasts and radio interviews. I spent the first few years of my research like a desperate journalist in search of evidence in order to seek the truth. But I always go with my gut, and that has always said, although flawed like all of us on this earth, he was truly a truth teller and brought direction and spiritual warmth to many. People have been trying to put their finger on me my whole life. I am a spiritual person. I believe in God, the creator, but I have no religious denomination. I do not have an agenda with the creation of this podcast. I'm not going to try and tell you who the man was, but present as much information that I can about his life. I've only scratched the surface with the conspiracy theories in this episode, but Malachi Martin to me will always be wrapped in mystery, and I think he would like that. I implore you all to go back and listen to Malachi's radio interviews, especially on his future predictions and the New World Order. Thanks for listening, and remember you can still watch our Hostage to the Devil documentary on Netflix until April 2021. We have a Facebook page too, so please give us a like and buy us a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com to help us keep this podcast going. And it would only be right to finish with the main man himself. In this world of man, this cosmos, there are just two main forces, God and evil, personified in Satan and Lucifer. And finally, since everything is being globalized today, evil itself is globalized. And what before was practiced by small communities and small sections of communities, small little groups, covens, as we used to call them, is now becoming the way of life and the way of thought of whole populations, according as their morals and ethics are completely degraded and uh, reduced to materialistic terms and hedonistic aims and totally this world uh, view of things. And that is the reign of evil and it is directly in contravention to the reign willed by God who is the sovereign creator and master of all things. So that's the situation today. This the evil is, no doubt about it, uh, more organized, more globalized, and it comes out in the new age, which is the deification of man and the creation of man's habitat as the only aim worth having, whereas this is not God's aim in this life for human beings.